1: Three great words: free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with one dollar minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through twelve thirty one twenty four. Excludes tax. Must up to rewards.
3: Hello, welcome to the first part of BBC History Magazine's April 2009 podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine.
4: And I'm Sue Wingrove, the deputy editor. Coming up in this podcast...
5: The way in which the First World War ended is fundamental for understanding later German history in the 20th century, and also the origins of the Second World War.
3: That was David Stevenson, who set our time machine for 1918.
0: So you expect to work from really early childhood into your old age, and that's if you're lucky enough to have an old age, of course.
3: And that was Louise Rohr, who will be telling us about The Match Girls' Strike. We'll hear more on these topics in a moment, and of course they are explored in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which features none other than Henry VIII on the cover. That's no great surprise, it's the 500th anniversary of his accession to the throne this April, so it was a good time to take another look at the Tudor monarch. The lead feature in the magazine is an interview with David Starkey, who has uncovered a previously unexamined source that helps us understand how Henry went from a mother's boy to a lady's man. Now, we've been working hard to improve the audio quality of this podcast, and I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about that, or indeed about anything else podcast or magazine related. You can email me direct on Dave Musgrove at bbcmagazinesbristol.com, or indeed if you wish to tweet at me at www.twitter.com forward slash bbc History mag. Yes, we've started twittering. I suspect our startling observations on the history world won't draw the number of followers of Stephen Fry, but maybe a select band of folk will be interested in the latest history happenings.
4: But don't let Dave's twittering stop you from buying the magazine. If you're not familiar with it, it's produced by BBC magazines in the UK. It comes out monthly and you can get it delivered to you anywhere in the world. We'll give details of how to subscribe later on in the podcast.
3: Now, one of our regular features in the magazine is our time machine, where we invite a historian to tell us the one year he'd most like to go back to and why. This month, BBC History magazine Features Editor Rob Attar invited David Stevenson, Professor of International History at the London School of Economics, into the time machine.
6: Why would you like to go back to Germany in 1918? So. Sure major
5: turning point in 20th century European history and perhaps the key question that still hasn't been satisfactorily answered and still a debate about this is exactly why Germany surrendered at the end of 1918 sued for a ceasefire and a peace and in particular the question of whether Germany was really defeated as of course a controversy arose about that in the 1920s with the Nazis and others suggesting that Germany had been stabbed in the back and hadn't really been defeated at all so the way in which the First World War ended is fundamental for understanding later Germany on history in the 20th century, and also the origins of the Second World War.
6: Now, when you're back in 1918, who would you like to speak to?
5: Well, the key person I'd like to talk to is Eric Ludendorff, And his title was First Quartermaster General, which makes it sound as if he's looking after the stores and the baked beans. But in fact, what he was, was the chief military planner in the German high command. So in effect, he was deputy to Paul von Hindenburg, who had taken over with Ludendorff, the high command of Germany in 1916. But they were the key people in shaping German strategy. And they were also extremely influential in shaping German politics, too. Because by 1918, both the Kaiser Wilhelm II and the Chancellor, who at that stage was von Hartling. Both these people were really very much marginalised and deferred a lot to the Supreme Command in matters of key policy, such as whether to apply for a ceasefire. So it's really a change of mind by Ludendorff at the end of September, in fact on September the 28th 1918. that's the key moment in starting the process that leads to Germany asking the Allies for an armistice.
6: What would you like to ask Ludendorff and Hindenburg? Well
5: I'd like to find out really what was in their minds. Both of them left memoirs. The memoirs are written later on, they're tendentious if you like. We have some contemporary accounts, particularly by Ludendorff's staff who were working in the High Command at the time when all this happened, and this was at the end of September nineteen eighteen. At that stage the High Command was stationed in Spa, which as its name suggests, is a Spa town in eastern Belgium. So that's where they were. And we have some accounts of what happened on the twenty eighth of September, which suggests that Ludendorff quite dramatically had a nervous breakdown, actually was collapsing and foaming at the mouth, um, completely incapacitated for a few hours, but then rallied round and decided at the end of the day, in a meeting with Perl von Hindenburg, that it was time for Germany to apply for a ceasefire. So what I'd like to ask him is what was in his mind. We know what he said to his staffers to justify the decision. Really, one would like to find out what was most weighing with him, coming to the view that Germany had to sue for peace. There are four major views, I think, or interpretations among historians about this. And this is really where the continuing debate is centered. Number one interpretation is the key reason why Germany sues for peace at that time is because of something that happens in the Balkans, where Germany's ally there was Bulgaria, and the Allies had just attacked in the Balkans, and Bulgaria had decided to sue for terms to drop out of the war. So it's the news of Bulgaria dropping out that seems the kind of precipitant, the catalyst that causes Ludendorff to break down. So if you accept that argument, it would support the view put by people such as Lloyd George and Winston Churchill later on that the Allies put too much effort on the Western Front and really they should have concentrated on attacking Germany and its Allies at the point where they were weak. This is what strategy later sometimes called knocking away the props or what Churchill talks about in World War II as attacking the soft underbelly of the crocodile. In other words, that you should try and defeat Germany through the back door, not through the front front door, and that the fact that it's Bulgaria that cracks would support that view. The second view would be that the key reason why Ludendorff collapses in the way he does is because of what's happening not in the Balkans, but because of what's happening on the Western Front, there's a massive series of synchronized Allied attacks taking place on 26th of September onwards, all along the Western Front, four major attacks, and the British Army actually breaks through the Hindenburg Line, which is the strongest German defense position, on the 29th of September, which is the day Day after Ludendorff breaks down, but the attack is in progress from the 28th. So the key thing is, on this view, would be the Germans are facing the biggest battle of the war on the Western Front. So actually, the Western Front strategy was right. You have to defeat Germany in the West before Germany is beaten. The third possibility is that it's neither of these, and the thing that most weighs with Ludendorff is what's happening in Germany particularly the effects of the Allied blockade in bringing about an economic crisis in Germany, desperately short of raw materials such as oil and rubber and precious metals and, of course, food. And these things together meant that Germany would no longer be able to hang on for more than a few more months. The final possibility, the fourth possibility, is that what really weighs with Ludendorff is the home front, but it's the politics of the home front. What he's worried about is that the army will collapse and break down and be useless for keeping order at home. So he wants to kind of keep an intact army in place not have it smashed up by the Allies, stop the war before that happens, so that he can handle the blowback, the potential revolutionary crisis at home, once it's become clear that the war was lost. I think the true explanation, of course, you have no way to combine all these things, but exactly how you combine them, you need more evidence and a closer view, more exact sense of how people were shaping their minds up, the key decision makers at the time.
6: So if you could speak to Ludendorff, you could find that out, I suppose.
5: Well, if I could speak to Ludendorff, it would help to clarify that. There are questions I'd like to ask him. Ludendorff is the most important person. Hindenburg would also be interesting to know about, as he's much less central than Ludendorff, but he seems to make his mind up in much the same way at much the same time. The other person worth talking to would be the foreign minister, Paul von Hintzer, who is the person who actually came up with a plan of a so-called revolution from above, which, in other words, at the same time as appealing to the Allies for peace, you would bring in the socialists and the left into a new, government in Germany to kind of saddle them with some of the share of responsibility for Germany's defeat. It's interesting that it's those people who were the key policymakers, Wilhelm II and the Chancellor who i mentioned before, von Hartling, these people are very much bypassed and marginalised in the process.
6: Do you think that the Germans were premature in asking for an armistice? No,
5: I don't, um, because I don't see that there was any way in which they could win the war by the end of 1918, nor could they have held out very much longer. The key point is that the Allies were able to break through any defenses that the Germans could put up on the Western Front by the end of 1918. It's no longer like the Battle of the Somme in 1916 or Passchendaele in 1917. The German army can no longer hold the Western advance. If the war had gone on into 1919, the Western Allied advantage would have been even larger. They would certainly have driven into the Rhineland. They would have been supported by many more tanks, and particularly by many more aircraft they're preparing a major bombing offensive against Germany's cities, and Germany's raw materials, in particular its oil, were running out. Once Bulgaria had gone, the Germans would no longer have access to Romania, which was their main source of oil, which would mean they would no longer be able to keep their air force in the air or their U-boats, their submarines at sea. So if the Germans had carried on, their situation would simply have got worse and worse, and their bargaining possession would have got less and less. So there would have been no point in carrying it on. It would simply have been a waste of lives. But hypothetically, yes, they could have gone on into 1919, but there'd been no advantage for them in doing it.
6: Were there many people in Germany who were in favour of carrying on the war?
5: Well, one person, of course, is Hitler, who was in hospital in Belgium when he heard the news of the armistice and was completely shattered by it, and he talks about this in Mein Kampf. The other person, interestingly, is Ludendorff himself who actually changed his mind. What happened was that Ludendorff first badged the German government into appealing for a ceasefire at the end of September, early October. But then, in the middle of October, he gets second thoughts, particularly once it looks as if the Allied terms are going to be much more severe than he'd expected. And what he'd hoped was that he could go to America. The American president, Woodrow Wilson, was seen as a kind of soft touch who would be moderate in the terms he would demand. They kind of split America off from the people in Britain and France who are much tougher. Now, it doesn't work like that. By mid-October, but it looks as if Germany is going to get much tougher terms required from the Allies than it originally thought, and then Ludendorff changes his mind, argues that Germany could keep fighting. It's at that stage that the politicians and Wilhelm II actually get sick and tired of him, lose all confidence in him, and the way in which his career ends is that Wilhelm II sacks Ludendorff while ordering Hindenburg to stay that's on the 26th of October 1918 so Hindenburg did stay but those two men never spoke to each other again permanent rift between them after that Ludendorff went off into exile in Sweden
6: and famously I suppose Ludendorff and Hitler then teamed up later on
5: Yes, they did. That's right. Ludendorff comes back to Germany in the early 20s, greatly admires Hitler, is involved in the Munich Putsch of 1923, and later served in the Reichstag, the German parliament between 24 and 28. He was elected as deputy for a front group, which included the Nazis. So in the mid and late 20s, he did support Hitler, though interestingly later lost his enthusiasm for Hitler as well. It's actually when Hindenburg, as German president, brings Hitler in as Reich Chancellor in 1933, Ludendorff wrote to Hindenburg saying that this would be a disaster and that history would curse Hindenburg for having brought Hitler into office because this would prove to be a catastrophe for Germany. He was sympathetic with Hitler as a nationalist in the 1920s. In the 1930s, he changed his mind. But when Hitler actually tried to patch things up in 1935 and offered Ludendorff a field marshalship, Ludendorff rejected it, refused it.
6: When you're back in 1918, are there any other historical debates you'd like to settle?
5: Well, I'd also like to talk to people on the Allied side. Germany is the center, of course, because the Germans, if you like, take the initiative in asking for a ceasefire. But it needs two sides. The Allies also have to agree to grant one. We have a lot more information, of course, about the British because they had extensive debates in cabinets. So we know the kind of thinking that was taking place among David Lloyd George and his colleagues in London. But we know much less about the American president, Woodrow Wilson, who didn't write very much down, didn't talk to people. So it would be extremely interesting to interview Woodrow Wilson and to see what was in his mind in November 1918. In particular, why did he stop the war at a moment when it looked as if the Allies were winning? Why didn't he go on into 1919? Because if he'd gone on into 1919, America would actually have dominated the Allied war effort much more than it did in 1918. They were planning to have 4 million American troops across in Europe by 1919. So in many ways, it would have made sense from his point of view to carry on. Now, I mean, I have my views about why he stops the war at the time when he does. I think it's particularly because he was worried about growing nationalism and support for the Republic within America, which would weaken him as someone who was trying to end the war on a fairly moderate basis. But that's not something that I can prove on the basis of the evidence that we have now. The other thing I think he may have been very worried about was just the sheer cost of the war and the expense of it, which was much more than he'd originally expected. To gain that something, you could only find out, really, by talking to him, and hopefully he would give honest answers.
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: That was Rob Attar talking to Professor David Stevenson, whose most recent book is 1914 to 1918, The History of the First World War. If you want to know more about the First World War, our November 2008 issue was a 90th anniversary World War One special. You can still get hold of a back issue of that by calling 0844 844 0250 if you missed it first time around. And that number by Curious Serendipity is also the number of our subscription hotline. Sue, so perhaps you could enlighten us about that.
4: UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine before 28th of April 2009 will receive a fantastic free book this month worth £25. Subscribe today and we'll send you a copy of David Starkey's Henry, A Virtuous Prince, absolutely free. Plus, you'll save a pound on every issue of the magazine. That works out at just £2.60 an issue. For more details, go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine. Or you can call us on 0844 844 0250 and quote the code POD112. If you're listening to this podcast outside the UK, you'll be pleased to learn you can get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call plus 44 1795 44728 for more details.
3: Let's go on to the Match Girls. In her new book, Striking a Light, historian Louise Raw has uncovered new truths about the successful strike by women of the Bryant and May Match Factory in 1888 against their brutal employer. Her research has shown her that it was the workers themselves, not middle-class reformer Annie Besant, who were the driving force behind the walkout. Louise discusses the strike in the latest issue of the magazine, and earlier Sue Wingrove talked to Louise about her hunt to track down the strike's real ringleaders.
4: So, hello, Louise. Hi, Sue. Um, now, Louise, if I was one of the 1,400 women or girls who worked at the Bryant and May factory in 1888, what
0: would my life be like? Um, there were women working at the factory. I've written about one match woman called Martha who was working there at the age of six. So you can expect to work from really early childhood into your old age, and that's if you were lucky enough to have an old age, of course, which not all poor Enders were. There were actually labour markets in the East End for children of 9 years and older. And it was really not uncommon to be working by 10. Most children would be working in some form by 10 years old. Now, if you're actually working for to May, your working day would start at 6 o'clock or 6.30, depending on the time of year. You'd probably get up about 5, do some chores around the house, and then walk to the factory, and that could be 2 miles or more. And once she got there, she'd have to stand for 12 hours a day to do her shift at a workbench. Um, she'd have her workmates all around her, but she couldn't even talk to them. Um, she couldn't even laugh. In some departments, you were fined for laughing. But if they caught you breaking rules, they would fine um, the match women or even hit them in some departments. The machines were dangerous to work with too. Um, we know there was one in 1888 that actually used to cut the women's fingers. So, to stop that happening, they'd made a little bit of a modification to it themselves. And when the foreman found out they were furious, made them put the machine back as it was, and said to them, this is more valuable than you. The machine's worth more than you are, so never mind your fingers. And straight after that, one of the match girls had fingers completely sliced off by this exact machine, and she was just sacked. She wasn't able to work, so she was out the door. No sick pay, no compensation in those days, of course. But what the women feared most what they probably had nightmares about was what they called "fossy jaw and that was phosphorus poisoning they worked with white phosphorus it's what they dipped the matches in and that's such a, a horrible and um, toxic chemical it's used as an insecticide people used to use it to commit suicide in victorian period and we've heard about it recently in recent conflicts it's it, it even banned for use as a weapon so it's considered too nasty for war but these women were working in an environment where white phosphorus was in the air. It would start to rot the jaw if you if you got fully fledged phosphorus necrosis. And we understand they're horrible accounts of, of pieces of bone that the size of peas being passed out through people's the holes in people's gums. You'd get separating abscesses and the smell was so bad that even loved ones couldn't couldn't stand to be in the same house as sufferers. And factory inspectors found um, young girls and boys from matchmaking living on the outskirts of towns, like complete outcasts. Horrible death as well, really lingering death from the disease. So, it, you know, it sounds very grim. Their lives were extremely tough. But the thing that I love about the women was that they knew how to make the best of things as well. Um, they, if you were working for Brian May, what you lacked... In salary, you made up for in a sense of belonging, really. And, and you were part of a huge gang of workmates who really looked out for each other, enjoyed going out together as well, and rare chances they got. Although they did have fights, we you know they, they had disputes and they settled them with fistfights outside the factories. But they, they even had their own look and they had their own styles. and um, They used to pay in from their wages into what they called feather clubs. And these were to buy themselves the fanciest hats they could possibly club together and get with great big feathers on them. And they'd share them around. So if you had a date with a docker on a Saturday night, you'd get the best hats. And then next week, it would be someone else's turn. And so it went on. They were really known, I found accounts from middle-class people saying they were known for their high spirits. In fact, middle-classes didn't really like it, the way they behaved at all. They weren't the decorous Victorian ladies or, or, you know, very quiet, humble, poor people that they should have been at all.
4: So we've got um, a picture of these women having incredibly hard lives, but very high-spirited. Now let's move on to the strike and the events leading up to the strike. So you've described what happened in the factory and then the middle class reformer Annie Besant came along. She wrote an expose in um, 1888. Now she's always been presumed to have urged the girls to go on strike but as you show in your book that's not actually the case. So what was the extent of her involvement in in the affair?
0: Right, yeah, yeah, she's absolutely right. Um, a thing is called um, and the Match strike" when it's written about. In fact, some people when I do talk, think that she actually was a match woman, that she was a member of uh, George Bernard Shaw's Fabian Society, one of the socialist groups in London. And yes, yeah, she did. She went down to the factory. she was at a Fabian meeting in June of 1888. And there was comment in the discussion about female labour in the East End, about Bryant and May, who were apparently paying huge dividends to their shareholders, and they were a 20% return on your investment. You can not get that nowadays. But their wages they paid to their, their work people were supposed to be really low, sort of starvation wages. So Bethany said she would go on and investigate this. She had her own worker's paper called The Link, which she published with um, another Fabian. She went down to the factory and outside the gates, waited until some of the girls came off shift, spoke to them and wrote about what what they told her, the terrible working conditions, um, the dangers of Fossy Jaw, how badly they were treated and how low their wages were. Um, it was... Published under the wonderful, resounding title of White Slavery in London. And it had a tremendous impact. Because Warrington May was such a respectable company. They were such a household name. They were, you know, eminent Victorian gentlemen. They weren't supposed to be treating their workers like this. They had quite a cosy reputation. And a lot of their shareholders as well were clergymen and liberal MPs, you know, really establishment figures. So certainly that caused, really did cause an outcry. And it was shortly after, a few days after that, that the strike began. So everyone concluded then that... They've been made to come out somehow. Somehow, Annie Besant and the Fabians had whipped them up and into a frenzy and made them come out on strike. But the mechanics of that would, would actually be incredibly difficult. How you would persuade 1,400 women who were absolutely dependent on every penny they earned to risk the sack, well, almost guarantee the sack and walk out. That's where I started, really. I thought, well, that's really interesting. I wonder, you know, what was the speech that, that Annie Besant gave and what, what tactics did they use? It's, it's impressive stuff. I looked in all the main Labour histories, and they do talk about the strike. It's more or less a line or two. Annie Betham began the strike. Uh, I couldn't find anything that, that, that told me exactly what had happened. And that's when I went down to the Bryant and May Company archives, which are just wonderful. These, these huge succession of, of enormous cardboard boxes. And Bryant and May, these, these guys just kept everything. They couldn't throw away, which is fantastic for me. You, you can find records of what they were actually saying and thinking at the time of the strike. It's all there. And, and I found... Quite early on, you know, there was some evidence that made me think things just weren't as they seemed. For example, the the biggest clue was they recorded a list of people they thought were ringleaders, in other words, these five women and girls that they thought had started to strike. I started with these five names... Um, I went to the stri- there's a register, strike fund register in the TUC archives at London Metropolitan University that shows everybody who went on strike and who received money from public donations mostly. And sure enough, there were these five names. And that's where it really started for me. I started looking at newspaper accounts from from the time, which is always fascinating, and found that reporters were coming down from the Star newspaper, which was. Um, a more serious version, a more political version of the paper that's around today and talking about meeting and, and, and seeing speeches by the, the women who started the strike and one in particular who they said was a pale little person in black and very popular with her workmates who had begun the strike. Um, she'd been sacked, she'd refused to speak out against Annie Besant's article as they, the, the foremen were demanding, they all do she was sacked on a pretext, and the women then walked out. And again, you think, well, if this strike was planned from the outside, how could, how could it be that it was spontaneous and the result of the sacking as well? They couldn't have predicted that Brian they were going to sack this girl, surely. And the more, the more I went on with my research, the more I found that evidence that just turned the whole history of the strike, as I'd been taught it, completely on its head... I found the real story as well was much more exciting and much more interesting and colourful as well as more historically important.
4: Louise, would you be able to name the, 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 the ringleaders for us?
0: Yes, they were Kate Slater, that's not Kat Slater, the famous Ended character, Kate Slater, Alice Vance, Jane Wakeley, Mary Driscoll and Eliza Martin. Those were the names that Bryant and May had given as uh, troublemakers.
4: Okay, um, so you, you started following up um, and you, you, you eventually tracked down some of their descendants, I
0: believe. And my real first stroke of enormous luck was when I was doing the talk at the museum in Docklands. I'd finished and people had come up to talk to me and I still had the backdrop of the, the best-known picture of the five match women outside the factory on strike. And the woman, I suppose she was about fifth in line, um, to talk to me and she said, oh, very, very, very quietly, and... Um, Yeah, I just thought I'd let you know. I think that's my grandmother pointing at the photograph. And Joan Harris, as it turned out to be, was um, the granddaughter of one of the women in the photograph who turned out to have been also on the Bryant and May list, Mary Driscoll, and also turned out to have been on the union committee that the girls elected um, on the first day of the strike. I was able, with help from another uh, match worker's grandchild, to find the names of all that union committee. So this was fantastic. I then did talk at the Ragged School Museum in London and two more grandchildren were in the audience of matchmakers. So this was just more than I'd ever expected. Not just descendants of matchmakers but people that had actually known these women. And also two of them had been on the Blind and May Troublemakers list. So it was just fantastic. And they really helped me to bring, bring the women to life um, and give them a voice. They weren't just nameless faces in a photograph. They were real people who had children and grandchildren and lives after the strike. And that really is the sort of thing which is absolutely invaluable when you're doing a history of this kind.
4: Louise, that's an amazing story. And finally, perhaps you could just tell us, why is this strike an important event for Labour history and why should we remember it?
0: Mm, Well, what's so interesting, of course, if you read most of the Labour history I'll tell you it isn't very important but it was at a time when important things started to happen but that of itself it is not really a big deal the Dockers strike the Great Dock strike as it's called the year afterwards in 1889 only started a mile or two away from the factory but it spread to encompass the whole of London and spread nationally as well hundreds of thousands of people were out on strike and that was really important and before that there'd been no labor movement no trade union movement as we know it workers conditions were often absolutely dreadful industrial workers like the matchwomen in particular and nobody was really there to help them unions mostly represented the best off the, the, the most skilled craftsmen the elite really and they, they were like trade associations looking after their members interests the poor were dying meanwhile in their thousands in industrial accidents and from industrial diseases A small amount of people were doing extremely well, of course, at the the height of the glistening Victorian Empire. But the vast majority of people were living in terrible conditions and nobody was standing up for them. The poor were regarded really uh, as being to blame for being poor. They were lazy, they were drunk, they were shiftless, they were immoral and so on. After um, this wave of strikes and new unions that formed... This perception really changed. People saw that actually these were decent people, they wanted a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. It really changed perceptions of the working classes. Now, the match women's strike was a really unusual victory by workers like this, who had no union, who had no contract, no 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 job security. And historians say, well, yes, it did begin in the same part of London and it was before the Great Dog Strike, but it wasn't really important because Annie Besant made them come on, out on strike. So they were just puppets, really, of the middle classes. I think there's an element as well of uh, perhaps not being able to accept that very poor, very young women were just capable of doing this, of standing up for themselves and for each other. But there's so much evidence when you go back to it with an open mind that this wasn't the case. Actually the Dockers went to the Match Women's Union, uh, the largest union of women and girls in the country formed after the strike in 1888 and they asked them for help and advice. Throughout the strike as well, to go back and read the speeches of the Dockers leaders, they're constantly using the example of the Match Women to spur their men on. They're saying, don't give up, remember the Match Girls. I've also found, um, with the matchwomen whose families I've looked at, that a huge amount were directly related to Dockers, match girls and Dockers traditionally, got married. So they're living in the same houses, if not they're living in the same streets. They're such close communities of workers, it's hard to see how the matchwomen could not have inspired and influenced the Dockers.
3: And thanks to Louise Raw, whose latest book, Striking a Light, The Truth About the Match Girl Strike and the Women Behind It, is published by Continuum in May.
4: And that brings us to the end of this podcast from BBC History Magazine. You might want to check out our website where you can download previous podcasts. The address is www.bbchistorymagazine.com.
3: And before we go, let us uh, let me just tell you, we've been working very hard recently. Aside from putting together what I hope you'll agree is a great April issue, plus recording these podcasts and all this twittering nonsense, we've also found some spare moments to produce a special Historic Days Out magazine, which features ideas for 244 historic places in the UK that you could visit this summer. It's only on sale in WH Smiths. It'll be on the shelves from the 2nd of April. It costs £5.99, and it's got a glorious photo of Urquhart Castle on the shores of Loch Ness on the cover.
4: The second of our April podcasts will be live on the 16th of April and will feature interviews on the wives of Henry VIII and the Amritsar Massacre of 1919. So do listen in.